Our passage today is from 1 Corinthians 10.15-11.1. through 11, 1. Again, we've been in a series in 1 Corinthians 10.15-11-1. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the market, the meat market, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, Why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We live largely in the gray area. We live largely in the gray areas, the problems that we encounter are usually not the black and white problems, but the many shades of gray that exist in between. You know, last week we heard Paul conclude in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
And that was the conclusion to which Paul has been working through the last three chapters of the letter of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 8, Paul began a discussion of meat sacrifice to idols. He encouraged the Corinthians to give up their freedoms and their rights for the sake of not causing their weaker brothers or sisters in Christ to stumble into idolatry. In chapter 9, Paul discussed the sacrificing of his rights for rescuing people from idolatry that they might learn and know the truth about the one true God. And then last week, in the beginning of chapter 10, what we studied last week, what was Paul recounting the history of Israel and how they fell into idolatry, how they feasted in worship on food that had been sacrificed to idols, whether it was the golden calf or Baal or others. So Paul warned the church, considering all the similarities between you and Israel, considering all that's gone before, before, beloved, flee from idolatry. These last three chapters have really just been one long argument leading up to verse 14. Flee from idolatry. And the discussion is specifically how to handle meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Now, you might remember from a few weeks ago that in first century Corinth, the, the temples, the pagan temples, functioned like butcher shops, like meat markets, and like banqueting halls. When you made a sacrifice to an idol, the meat of the animal sacrifice was generally divided into three portions. When you brought an animal to be sacrificed, a portion of that animal was placed on the altar and was burned and was offered as a sacrifice to the idol. But there was another portion of the animal that was given to the temple priests, and that was their payment. The priests would either eat that meat, or, since they probably received a lot of it, more than they could eat, they would then turn around and take and sell some of that meat in the marketplace. And because meat was so expensive and such a luxury, that might have been the only way that some people were able to purchase and afford meat. And then finally, the remainder of the meat would have been butchered and it would have been eaten by the worshiper in banqueting halls that were attached to the temple. And usually those meals that were celebrated in those halls were considered to be eaten in the presence of and participating in the worship of that idol. So as we noted a few weeks ago, those to whom Paul was writing, they, those who were part of the church in Corinth, they'd all largely come out of those pagan religions. They'd spent their whole lives sacrificing to these idols, worshiping these idols, offering animals, eating the meat that they'd purchased in the marketplace, banqueting in these halls before these so-called gods. But now everything's changed. Those in Corinth have come to Jesus. They've forsaken their old life. And just like Paul said, they fled the worship of idols. Well, of course, Paul. Of course I'm going to flee the worship of idols. That's black and white. There's no question about that. However, the problem came in the gray area. Exactly what constitutes the worship of an idol? You know, the Corinthians were saying, you know, I unquestionably, black and white, I trust Jesus. I've turned away. I've forsaken the worship of these so-called gods. But what if I'm invited to one of these banqueting halls by my neighbor for a feast? Or what if there's a meeting of the trade guild to which I believe is being eaten in one of these halls? Can I eat in these banqueting halls if I no longer eat that meal as an act of worship? Can I just eat the meat? And in the same way, some in Corinth were saying, I cling now to Jesus. 
I fled the worship of idols just like I know I should, but can I eat meat that's purchased in the marketplace that's been sacrificed to these idols? Is that still participation in idolatry? Because I agree, I should flee idols. You're right, Paul. Black and white, there's no question I should flee idols. But exactly what constitutes idolatry? Exactly what constitutes participating in idols? How do we navigate the gray areas? And friends, this is a great question. Because you and I spend a lot of time in the gray areas. You and I spend a lot of time navigating things that are not black and white, but gray. You know, let's take an example, the example of alcohol. You know, a few chapters ago in 1 Corinthians 6.12, Paul was quoting the Corinthians and he said, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So the Bible here and elsewhere condemns being dominated by or addicted to anything such as alcohol. And then in Ephesians 5.18, Paul writes, And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So throughout the Bible, in many other places, black and white, it's clear. Addiction to alcohol and drunkenness are wrong. So, friends, if you're here and you think you might be struggling with that, don't wait for your next DUI. Don't wait for your next forgotten night, your next foolish decision, your next snuck drink. Because there's freedom, there's hope, there's grace. Paul said in Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled by the Spirit. The gospel is that the power of the Spirit breaks our addictions. He breaks those chains. He cleanses us. He makes us new. There is freedom in Jesus Christ. So if you're struggling, don't wait. There's hope in the gospel. There's hope in the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. There's freedom. But the problem is, many people don't get the help they need because they don't think they're slaves to alcohol. They don't think they're addicted. They don't think they have a problem. Why? Because alcohol has some gray area. Exactly how much alcohol is too much alcohol? When is someone drunk? Is it when you have a a buzz? Is it when you're at the legal blood alcohol limit, which, by the way, is nowhere mentioned in the Scriptures? How much alcohol is too much alcohol? Or maybe considering its dangers and the damage alcohol has caused, any amount of alcohol is too much alcohol. So exactly how much alcohol is too much is a gray issue, and sincere Christians come down in very different places on this issue. To be drunk and addicted to wine, black and white, that's sinful, but exactly how much alcohol is permissible or what a Christian's relationship to alcohol should be is a gray area. Or or what about uh, another black and white issue from the original top ten list? The Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. You should not have sex with anyone who is not your spouse. That's black and white. However, as Bill Clinton famously asked, what do you mean by sexual relations? Or when I was working in youth ministry, the kids used to ask, how far is too far? How far can I go sexually with my girlfriend before it's too far? 
Is hand-holding okay? A quick kiss? How about prolonged kissing? Just, just how intimate can touching get before it crosses a line and it's sexual? There's, there's some gray area. And more than that, friends, what do we do with Jesus? Because Jesus comes along and in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 27 and 28, he says, You heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So to look lustfully at a woman is adultery. Well, that means clearly pornography. Indulging in graphic portrayal of sex is black and white sinful. And men and women, if you are here right now and you are struggling with pornography, which on the low side, they say 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women. If you're struggling, don't downplay it. Don't deny it. Don't disguise it because there is help. There is hope. There is freedom. Regularly engaging in images, videos, and stories that depict graphic sexuality is not only harmful to you and your relationships. Black and white, Jesus says, that kind of lust is sin. That being said, outside of pornography... What about movies that are graphic but technically don't show too much? So they're not technically pornography. What about those romance novels and stories that don't have any pictures but they sure paint images in your mind? What about those tasteful and artistic depictions of married sexuality? Is that adultery? You know, there's a huge discussion. Some of you who are listening in the Christian world, back in January of this year, a movie came out, Redeeming Love, which was based on a novel by the same name by Francine Rivers. And the book itself was inspired by the biblical book of Hosea. And so Francine Rivers' adaptation tells the story of a man named Michael Hosea who pursued a woman named Angel for marriage, even though this woman's a prostitute. Now, the movie was released in January, and it's rated PG-13 for mature sexual content and partial nudity. Now, I've read that the movie includes two bedroom scenes between the main characters after they're married. And so Christians were left debating, is it appropriate for Christians to watch sex scenes in movies when those scenes are portraying the beauty of married sexuality in the context of a redemptive narrative such as this one based upon the biblical story of Hosea and Gomer? Jesus said looking lustfully is adultery. But in our sex-saturated society, when it seems to be all around us, when is a look lustful? When is it adulterous? There's gray area. Now, friends, saying these things, I need to offer a flat-out disclaimer. Or maybe it's a warning to us. Acknowledging that there's gray does not mean there is no black and white. Friends, there is objective black and white. There's objective right and wrong. Some things are unquestionably black and white. So, friends, we need to stop trying to create or claim gray areas where there is no gray areas. Because we need to recognize the human heart. Sometimes, if we're talking about this issue today, sometimes our sinful hearts declare that something is gray when the Scripture is clearly and unquestionably black and white. Sometimes our sinful hearts desperately want something to be gray when the Scriptures declare it's black and white, right or wrong. For example, the Scriptures are black and white. Humanity is created distinctively and immutably as male and female. 
Now, just because cultures express different gender norms, such as dress or roles, that doesn't deny that there's an inherent maleness, femaleness woven into the creation, woven into our biology, woven into our DNA, woven into our very personhood. Scripture is clear, black and white. Sexuality is created by God. And the full expression of that sexuality is only in the context of one man and one woman in marriage. So anything else outside of that arrangement is sin. Church, admitting that there's gray areas in life does not justify us gray-washing the clear black and white teachings of Scripture in order to remain relevant or to evolve with the times. So I'm simply saying, yes, there is gray, but no, not everything is gray. Not everything is subject to personal opinion or open to interpretation. In having this discussion, there is black, there is white, there is right, there is wrong. What we're discussing here today, and what Paul is discussing, are areas about which Scripture does not make a clear, black and white, right or wrong statement. Now, as we've seen, the issue that the church in Corinth is facing is this issue of food sacrifice to idols. Now, avoiding idolatry, black and white issue. But what about eating meat sacrificed to idols in the temple banqueting rooms? What do we do with that? Now, Paul begins in verses 15 through 22, as Kevin read for us, and he's warning the Corinthians against participating in the worship of idols. So, and, and by the way, if you're not already, Kevin actually printed it out this week, so you can follow along with the scripture, um, write in your bulletins, or you can turn in your own Bibles. But verses 15 through 22, Paul's warning the Corinthians against participating in the worship of idols, and his argument here has two ifs and a then. Two premises, 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 premises? Premies? Should have thought about that one before I tried to say it. Two ifs and then a then. Paul draws together two analogies. He says, if when you Corinthians come together and you feast on the Lord's Supper together, breaking the bread, drinking from the cup together, if you believe that that's participating in the body of the Lord, and then if those in Israel, when they came together and feasted on the meat that had been sacrificed on the altar to the Lord, if that was them participating in the worship of the Lord, then participating and feasting in the temple banqueting rooms of idols must also be participation in those sacrifices. So avoid feasting in the temple of the idols. Flee from idolatry. Now, at some, this point, some in Corinth and maybe some here in Camden might object and go, whoa, Paul, I remember what he was saying in chapter 8. In chapter 8, Paul told us that there's only one true God. He told us that idols are nothing, and therefore, we are free to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Did Paul change his mind between chapter 8 and chapter 10? So Paul clarifies for us here in verses 19 through 20. Look at that. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that idols anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now, now Paul repeats what he said before. He says, idols are nothing. And that means that food sacrificed to idols is ultimately no problem. However, he makes the point in verse 20 that while idols are nothing, there are demons. Friends, there are dark forces in this world that delight in and encourage the worship of any God other than the true God. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of 
the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, the false religions in this world are not merely human imagination. They weren't merely created by human energy. There are dark forces at work. In other words, the idols themselves are nothing, but there are principalities and powers at work that seek to draw people away from the worship of the one true God. And Paul says, black and white, flee from such idolatry. Even if you go to these temple feasts with the full knowledge that these idols are nothing, you're exposing yourself unnecessarily to the influence of darkness. You risk unnecessarily temptation away from the Lord, and the Lord may become righteously jealous. Plus, in doing such a thing, he had argued back in chapter 8, you risk harming the faith of weaker Christians. In chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, he said, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge that idols are nothing... If he sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Paul says, sure, idols are nothing, so you technically have the right to do such a thing. But in exercising your right, you risk the jealousy of the Lord and being drawn away from the worship of Him. You're meddling in dark forces, and you risk your brother's consistency. So is it worth it? Flee idolatry, both for your own sake and for the good of your neighbor. Now, while Paul seems to say that eating a meal in the temple banqueting rooms is a participation in idolatry, or at least a great risk of doing so, what about eating meat purchased in the marketplace that's been sacrificed to these idols? Is that a participation in idolatry? It's another gray area. Another gray area that they have to wrestle with. And so how does Paul counsel those in Corinth and thus counsel those of us here in Camden to navigate gray areas like this? Well, I wrote the sermon title to help you remember. Gray, good, and glory. Gray, good, and glory. When it comes to gray issues, consider your neighbor's good and God's glory. That summarizes Paul's argument. When it comes to gray issues, consider your neighbor's good and God's glory. Paul starts here, he says, consider your neighbor's good. When it comes to a great issue, consider your neighbor's good. Verses 23 and 24. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now that, that little statement, all things are lawful, that was a slogan. It was regularly repeated in the church in Corinth. And we know it was their slogan because Paul quotes it four times over the course of this letter. In fact, we've already seen it twice in 1 Corinthians 6.12 and then twice here. Clearly, this was kind of their drum that they were beating. That They were saying, hey, listen, I have the right to do these things because all things are lawful. I am free to do these things. And they were exercising their rights without regard to the impact that it was having on those around them. So Paul says, when it comes to these gray issues, you should be considering the impact you're having on those around you. 
You should be considering their good. On the gray areas, consider the good of the church. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Not all things build up. Don't just seek your own good, but the good of your neighbor. And this grates against us. Because we've been told that true liberty means to be unbound by anything and unbeholden to anyone. If I want to eat meat sacrificed to idols and another person has a tough time with it, well, you know, tough luck, buttercup. Deal with it. I'm being my authentic self. It's my right. But the message here is our liberty, church, our liberty should always be practiced in light of love. Biblical freedom has always been defined not as the freedom to do whatever I want, but the freedom to serve Christ and to love others. Three weeks ago when we studied 1 Corinthians 8, we remembered Paul's letter to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul wrote, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Church, we've been given liberty, freedom to love and to serve one another. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So in the gray areas, think about their good. In the gray areas, consider not just your rights, but your neighbor's good. Now, for example, Paul offers here in, in verses 25 through 27, he affirms, you know, eat whatever you find. You, you can eat whatever you find in the meat market or whatever set before you because Quoting in verse 26, he quotes Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Truly, there's nothing wrong with the meat that's been sacrificed to the idols, because idols are nothing, and this is my Father's world. It belongs to Him. It's good. And all that He's created is good. And it's to be received with thanksgiving. But Paul warns us that exercising this right, especially in the gray areas, the debatable areas, you should give consideration to the good of your brother. In verses 28 and 29, But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Now, I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? So the speaker who's saying this has been offered as a sacrifice would have been a weaker Christian. Maybe one who recently came to Jesus out of paganism and is still struggling to believe that these foods that have been sacrificed to idols are actually nothing. And so Paul says, don't just blithely exercise your rights. Consider the good of your brother and sister. And Paul makes clear here, I hope you notice, that this isn't an absolute prohibition. It's not a permanent change in behavior. He says, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Your liberty isn't decided by their conscience, but you should be sensitive in your practice of liberty to their conscience. Paul says, exercising your rights in the gray, you should always give consideration to your neighbor's good. You know, I was asked after the sermon on 1 Corinthians 8, you know, they said, somebody asked me, they said, well, you know, when you're in Japan or in another country, but in Japan, if you visit a Shinto shrine or a Buddhist temple, 
How should you conduct yourself? You know, because if you've ever been to Japan, and you know when you visit those sites, there's a proper way to visit a temple. You're supposed to pay your respects at the front gate and perform a purification ritual and ring the bell and make an offering and go on and on. And if we know that idols are nothing and there's only one true God, so I go to that Shinto shrine and I, I practice those rituals simply as part of the culture, and if there is a prayer to be offered, I offer it to the true God, then is that okay? How do I exercise my rights? Am I free to do that? But Paul would probably refer us back to this discussion and say, hey, just like participating in the temple, you should beware of the dark forces behind those idols. Just like he would say, hey, think about the good of your brother. How, how would your participation in that affect your Japanese brother in Christ who's coming out of Buddhism? Would it cause them to stumble? Would they consider that to be participation of idols? Even if you are free to do something like that, how you practice your freedom, what effect does it have on your brothers or sisters? You're not bound by your neighbor's conscience, but out of love you should consider your neighbor's good. Or for some people a little closer to home, attending a non-Christian um, relative same-sex wedding to which you've been invited. I mean, we might know that same-sex unions exist legally because the courts have declared it and practically because society increasingly condones it. But we know Scripture teaches that marriage can only actually exist between one man and one woman. So is attending such a service like feasting in a pagan temple? Is it possible to communicate the truth privately to my relative? but still choose to attend the ceremony as a representative of Christ's love? Can I go without participating or giving approval to the actual union? It's a gray area, or maybe it's not a gray area. I'm not necessarily declaring it is, but if it is a gray area, we should consider what would my attendance communicate? What would my attendance at this ceremony communicate to my brother or sister in Christ who heard? What would it communicate to the world who's watching my participation? We're not bound by our neighbor's conscience, but out of love we should consider our neighbor's good. In the gray, we should consider our neighbor's good. Consider those around us and what it communicates, what effect it has on them. Whether it's drinking alcohol or watching a particular movie or TV show or reading particular books or dressing up and handing out candy on Halloween. Consider not just what is true, not just what is your right, but in the gray we should think about our neighbor's good. But even more than our neighbor's good, in any of these issues or any other issues you might bring up, friends, ultimately... In the gray, consider not just your neighbor's good, but Paul concludes, God's glory. The most important thing is God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now in Hebrew, the word translated glory in the Old Testament is kavad. Kavad. It literally means weight or heaviness. Now have you ever had somebody say something and you're like, wow, that is heavy. Or have you ever been discouraged when people don't like your ideas, they just didn't carry weight with those people? Or maybe you've been frustrated by those people who come in and they throw their weight around. Or maybe you yourself put your weight behind a cause. We use the word weight as a metaphor for strength, importance, glory, or honor. People of great importance are weighty, and people insignificant don't carry much weight. And Paul says, whatever you do in worship, in all of life, do it considering the weightiness of God. 
Do it considering His glory. Do it so that the world knows how weighty and important He is. Let your life and your choices demonstrate the weightiness of God, that His Word carries weight, that His reputation is weighty, that His importance is the greatest. When it comes to a gray area, consider not only the good of your neighbor, but most importantly, the glory of God. Will my participation in this activity bring glory to God? Will it communicate the truth of His weightiness? of His power, of His goodness. You know what the truth about the situations we face is. You know your rights, but choose that the world might know His glory. Choose that the world might know His glory. Paul concludes in verses 32 and 33, Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. See, Paul says in the gray areas, choose that will bring glory to God so that others might see and be saved. So that the world might see and the the Lord won't be taken lightly. But instead that he might be known as weighty and glorious. The greatest of our concerns, church, the greatest of our concerns is not our freedom. It's not our rights. It's the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. All decisions made on gray matters should be in light of the world seeing the glory of God and hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that is not your first priority, church, your priorities are wrong. If your rights and your freedoms are more important, your priorities are wrong. Friends, in the black and the white, in the right and the wrong, we must fully obey Christ. However, in the gray areas of life, while there's much that we may be free in Christ to do, not all of it's beneficial, not all of it's helpful, and not all of it builds up. So Paul reminds the church in Corinth and the church in Camden, you don't live primarily for yourself and for your rights. So in the gray areas, live for your brother and sister's good and live for the glory of God and church. How will you go forth now and do just that? Let's pray. Father, we live in a lot of gray. There are things that are unclear. But on those things that are abundantly certain, on those black and white issues, make us resolute and unmoving, clinging to you and to your truth, clinging to your gospel, which is unchanging and eternal. And on those issues that are gray, on those issues where there is question, may we put first not our freedoms, may we put first not our rights, may we put first your glory and the good of your church. Help us. Help us in our weakness. Help us to follow. Help us to glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.